Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. We just celebrated Thanksgiving as a national holiday. Uh, President George Washington was the first to issue a proclamation for the holiday in 1789. He designated Thursday, November 26th, the day of public Thanksgiving. However, it didn't become a national holiday with a set date until 1863. And so now it's celebrated on the fourth Thursday of November. It's a pretty central holiday. Uh, Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, Fourth of July, Memorial Day. There's a couple others as well that are federally recognized national holidays. Uh, there's quite a few other national kind of days. I'm not sure how you get something called a national day. Uh, some of them are actually pretty peripheral. One that is near and dear to my heart that I just learned about this year is National Scrapple Day. Yeah. Happened on November 9th. Happens on November 9th every year. So if you missed it this year, you can look forward to it next year. Not Scrapple in terms of the game. Scrapple in terms of the me. Any, any Scrapple fans? Oh, yeah, all right. Good. good. That's, that's good. I'm proud of you folks. Um, I grew up in the boonies of Pennsylvania. So yeah, I'm kind of a Scrapple fan. And those of us who are sophisticated enough to enjoy it, um, God's presence is with us. Uh, <coughs> National Squirrel Appreciation Day um, shares the same date as National Hug Day. Uh, that's coming up on January the 21st. So make sure you appreciate a squirrel. On that. Again, I, I, don't make, I don't know how these get to be national days, but they are. They're not national holidays, but whatever they are. National Hairball Awareness Day is uh, April 26th, happens on the last Friday of every April, so don't just like think of April 26th, it's the last Friday of April, so you make sure you don't miss it. Um, National No Socks Day is celebrated May 8th every year. Uh, this is one that I'm not quite sure what the purpose is or how it got there. National Ex-Spouse Day is observed every year on April the 14th, exactly two months after Valentine's Day. So again, I don't know where that came from, who established it, but whatever the case is. Uh, those are certainly peripheral days. And we know that there are things that are central, there are things that are peripheral. And we've been in a series in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 called Core. And we entitled it Core because there's really nothing peripheral that Paul talks about in Ephesians 1 and 2. In fact, this morning, we're going to close off Ephesians chapter 2 by looking at verses 19 through 22. And Dennis Summers is going to come up and read those verses. And you're going to hear when he reads some pretty core words. You're going to hear about a foundation. Foundations are not peripheral. They're core. They're central. You'll hear about Jesus being the chief cornerstone. A cornerstone is not peripheral, it's central. So keep an ear out for that. Uh, Dennis is going to read these verses, tune in, and then we're going to work our way through them. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. 
Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Thank you, Dennis. Um, We're going to look at three things that are are core. uh, And some of it is a little bit of review, because again, we're closing off the series Today, and we'll jump into something new next week. We're going to look at three things. God's work is personal. Uh, That's one core thing. God's work is communal. That's another core thing. And God's work is also progressive. It's another core aspect that we're going to be looking at. All three of them, not peripheral. They're very central. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Paul recognized, he's talking here about to the Gentile folks who were once sort of on the peripheral, on the outside of connecting with God, of being his people. He says, now you are no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers. Instead, you're fellow citizens. You now belong through Christ, to the work that God is doing. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. The apostles are the ones that taught about the gospel message, the coming of Jesus. The prophets there are those who were teachers as well. A prophet in the scripture doesn't mean to simply future tell, but to simply forth tell that which is true about God. And so the apostles were the ones who spoke authoritatively about the truth of the gospel message. The prophets as well proclaimed that to people to profess faith in Jesus. With Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. There again, you get that core word of cornerstone. It's not peripheral, but the foundation of all this is the person of Christ. God's work is personal. Uh, Some people have outlined the book of Ephesians, and I'm just going to give you a little bit of a big picture view. We've talked about this, not exactly these terms, but connected to these terms throughout the series. Uh, Chapters, chapter one, through about the first half of chapter two, Paul talks about new life. The new life is God at work personally. He's not just to work in the grand scale, but instead every person is basically an outsider. We said a number of weeks ago, we all fall short of God's glory. We're all dead in our sin. We're all alienated from God. We're all disconnected from our creator. And so the first chapter and a half of Ephesians has everything to do with God giving us new life in Christ. Well, about halfway through chapter 2, all the way through chapter 3, Paul talks about a new society. Or we might talk, say, a new community. So now God is at work personally. God is at work communally. God is building a new kind of community, a new kind of culture. Uh, We'll dive into chapters 3 and following in January, and we're going to look at the fact 
that God is building his new community, his new humanity. Several weeks ago when Jeremy looked at verses 11 through 18, he talked about God bringing together a new kind of humanity through the person of Jesus. In chapters 4, about halfway through 5, Paul talks about the fact that there are new standards. New standards. So it's not just as though we're kind of live, live these super spiritual lives, but there's actually new behaviors, new qualities, new characteristics of those who have been given new life. There's new, there's new standards, new characteristics, new qualities that are to reflect, be reflected by this new kind of humanity, this new society, this new community. And so Paul talks in Ephesians 4 and 5 about the new standards, the new kinds of behaviors, the way that we treat one another, the way that we deal with things like our anger. Then lastly, there's new relationships. New relationships. In chapters um, 5 and 6, Paul talks about the husband and wife dynamic. He talks about other cultural relationships. At the very end of the letter, he talks about the fact that the forces of darkness are in opposition to our lives. And so he talks about our relationship with the forces of darkness, our dependence on God to be our strength. So there's new life. It's a very personal thing. God is at work personally. There's a fly going out here. There's a new society. There's a new community that God is working in. There's new standards for how we're to live. And there's new relationships. There's, there's different ways that we're to relate to one another. We'll get into the relationships probably in the spring. Uh, following Easter, we're going to talk not only about husband-wife relationships, but also about just who, who humans are in general and how we relate to even ourselves. We'll cover a number of sexual areas that are kind of pretty hot topics in our, our culture. We're not covering them because they're hot topics. We cover them because we've got to dive into scripture. Uh, but we're going to springboard into that. But for now, we said God's work is personal. It's personal. We, we as people are alienated from God. We need to be reconciled to him, made right with him, belong once more to him. And throughout history, there's always different voices that say, here's how to be made new. Here's what's going to give humanity the next macro step forward. In fact, when I say new society or the new man, it was actually Karl Marx who also or, or penned those words, new man to new society. Millions of people caught that vision and dedicated themselves to realizing his vision. But what Marx saw was that the primary, or what he thought he saw, was that the primary problem with humanity was not humanity's relationship with God, but humanity's relationship with economics. The new society was the classless society which would follow the revolution, and the new man would emerge because of his economic liberation. That was sort of Marxist philosophy. If only we can get the economic thing right... Then humanity will move forward. If only people can be economically liberated, that'll bring utopia in our world. The scripture certainly acknowledges there's economic challenges. 
It acknowledges challenges in lots of areas, but fundamentally, Scripture says what's central to humanity is not necessarily an economic problem. Certainly in our day and age, we hear a lot about critical race theory, and I'm not going to get into the aspects of that, but at least one thing it does recognize is that there's something wrong with the world. It kind of overly simplistically divides the world up into the oppressed and the oppressor, and it reads all of the world through that lens. And so bits and pieces, just like there's, there is certainly economic disparity that God cares about. There certainly is the oppressed and the oppressor that God cares about. But at the foundation of it all, God says, my work is intensely personal. The challenge with human beings is not that we need to turn over a new leaf. The challenge is we actually need a new you. You need a new you. It's interesting, the number of times, I think it's three of them, that Paul actually talks about God recreating or God creating in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus Christ is, Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, God is recreating men and women to do good works. As I mentioned last week, or a couple weeks ago, we said he was creating a new humanity. In Ephesians chapter 4, he's recreating us in his own image in true righteousness and holiness. The work of creation is God's work. God says we need to be a new creation, and that's an intensely personal work. Klein Snodgrass says this, the new person and the new society are God's creative work. Economic restructuring has great importance, but it cannot produce these things. They are beyond the capacity of human power and ingenuity. They depend on the action of the divine creator. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, Paul is just kind of like driving home the fact that God works personally. He says this in Romans 10, 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth, and a mouth belongs to each individual person. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Anyone who believes. It's intensely personal. Again, verses 19 of Ephesians. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Now, last Sunday, we celebrated some baptisms, and every single baptism that you saw was a personal response to the grace of God. Every baptism story that you heard was a personal story, a personal response to God's saving grace in people's lives personally. And so simply what I want to say to you is this, belief in God, receiving new life from him, it's not a simply a matter of religiosity. It's not a matter of family connection to a long history of churchgoers. It's a very deeply personal thing. And so I would just simply say, if you're in this room, if you're watching online, you're not simply made right with God by social contagion. You're not made right with God by brushing shoulders with spiritual activity. You're not made right with God by being on your best behavior. You're not 
made right with God by conforming to somebody's religious expectations of how you ought to believe. You're actually made right with God very personally by the person of Jesus Christ. And it's so important. That's, that's core. It's central. It's not peripheral. It's central. But notice, God's work isn't just personal. It's also communal. Yes, it's personal, but it's not just personal. It's personal, but it's not private. There's a communal aspect to the way that God is at work in our world. And it's so important that we realize that otherwise we'll miss out on another central thing that God is up to. Verse 21, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become the whole, a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, and in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, just kind of the gospel does an amazing job here because often cultures go one direction or the other. In ancient times, it was largely an honor, shame, and culture, which simply meant your identity was almost exclusively based on sort of how your family or tribe or group viewed you. If you offended the family values, if you did not live up to sort of the expectations of the tribe or family, you were ostracized, you fell far short. That's sort of ancient culture. You were defined by who you associated with. You were defined by family. You were defined by the expectations of the group. Now, in modern era, it's much more individually based. Uh, so much so that we say, like, forget what family thinks. Forget what everybody else thinks. I need to blaze my own trail. I need to cut my own swath. I need to figure out who I am. Uh, I don't sacrifice myself for the group. Instead, the group actually should sacrifice themselves for appeasing my personal desires of what I personally want. This is individual autonomy. This is autonomy of the group. Now, actually, in our culture, in modern times, we're kind of seeing a little bit of a, a contrast there. There's both this sort of tribalistic aspect as well as extreme individualism. And we're still trying to figure out sociologically what's going on there. But notice what the gospel, the gospel actually gives itself to neither. The, the gospel says, yes, God is at work in you personally, but God is also at work in his community of people, not in a tribal identity, but their identity actually comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, let me just click off a number of more community-based terms that happen in these verses that we just read. He talks about us being fellow citizens. He talks about God's people, members of his household. He talks about the whole building. He talks about being joined. All of those words aren't just personal. They're also communal. They're together. He talks about a holy temple. He talks about being built together. He talks about a dwelling. And so Paul is saying there's a very unique aspect in which God dwells in this earth among his people. Now, quite honestly, I often lose perspective of this. Um, not number one, Paul uses the word temple. He uses the idea of temple language in these verses. 
And temples in the ancient days were not simply sort of the ancient, ancient version of modern-day church buildings. It was totally different than that. Uh, temples weren't necessarily where large groups of people gathered. Temples were actually seen as the representation of the dwelling place of a particular God on earth. Not necessarily a gathering place for people, but this is the space where God's presence would be. And it would kind of like emanate from that out into the world. Jesus says, number one, personally, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. This verse just blows my mind. I've known it pretty much all of my life and just been thinking about it recently. And it just, it's mind-blowing to me. So Paul says, do you not know? Get a hold of this. This would have been unthinkable in ancient times. We're kind of used to the words, so we just kind of quickly go over them. Do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Again, Paul is talking more personally here, but he's saying if, if you're a follower of Jesus, God actually resides in you. His presence is in you. You're actually a roving temple where God resides. Now, when I think of where God resides, sometimes, yeah, I kind of think of Christmas. You know, God came in, in, in flesh dwelt among us. He walked this planet for 30-some years. So God's presence was on earth through the person of Jesus. I also can kind of get wrapped in my head that God's presence is in heaven. The throne room of God, his place, his space, the angelic realm. But this verse actually says, God dwells in you through his spirit. That God resides in you. And so Paul says, be careful how you live in your body. That's a good word for us today because sometimes we get so spiritually minded, we forget that, yes, God made our bodies. He gave us physicality. He dwells, not, not spatially, of course. It's a relational idea. God is present in our bodies, which means this. Well, I don't know, this, this temple had a lot of eating to do over the last few days. But, but those, that, that's, that's, I kind of raise that because it's humorous, but it doesn't make me think. Like, how am I feeding God, it's God's temple? Am, am, I, am I getting appropriate rest for God's temple? If you're so busy and you have very little sleep, it's actually not honoring to God's temple. It's not actually honoring to the place that God... Getting more done and maxing yourself out may win the favor of human beings, but it can actually be dishonoring to God's temple, his place of residence. You live your sexual life through, your, through the temple. And so it's not just spiritual, like I sing great 
worship songs, your sexual body is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. Do you carry your temple? Do you manage your temple in a way that represents that God's dwelling is in your body? What gives your eyes pleasure, what you feast your eyes on when you tap out a text message or post something online and you use your body to do that? You're actually using the temple of God to see. You're actually using your, the temple of God to tap out a message. Is what you're tapping out, does it, does it represent that which is joyful and beautiful and true and loving and gracious and goodness and kind? Is, is what you feast your eyes on, is that beautiful? Is it true? Is it worthy? Is it something that God delights in? Or are you kind of desecrating your God-given temple with things that don't represent his residence well? So it is personal there as well, but notice this is where God is also at work communally. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by a spirit. You're being built together. You're dwelling in which God lives by a spirit. It, it talks about us being interconnected together and together corporately where this dwelling place of God, this, where, this, where this place where he resides. You know, scholars have noted, and I think we went over this in the Revelation series, that in, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, it appears from the language there that the Garden of Eden was actually the, the temple of God. It was a place where he walked among his creation. He walked in the cool of the day with Adam and Eve. It was a place that his, his presence filled the Garden of Eden. It was, it was sort of a temple on earth, with a temple without walls. It was God's space. We also point out, and I think this was Revelation, that when you get to the book of Numbers, and the people of Israel are given instructions for building the tabernacle, some of the language that's used and how the priests were to care for and tend the tabernacle is the exact same language that God uses in Genesis 1 and 2 for how Adam and Eve are to tend and cultivate the Garden of Eden. He says, protect the garden, guard it, take care of it, cultivate it. Those exact same words, the mission that he gives to Adam and Eve to live in the temple of Eden are the exact same words that he gives to the priests as they function in the tabernacle. They're to tend it, they're to cultivate it, they're to keep it, they're to guard it because that's the place of his dwelling. And now Paul says, we together are this household, this dwelling place, where God lives, where he resides, his name, his character, how we relate to the outside world, how we relate to one another is to provide a snapshot of what it looks like for God to be present among us. You can just kind of picture this in ancient Ephesus. They had the temple of Artemis. 
the goddess Diana. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was this massive structure. It was revealed. It was seen as amazing. It was this focal point of the ancient world. And yet the apostle Paul is saying, yes, that's the temple of Artemis. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. That was sort of the proclamation that was pronounced over the temple of Artemis. But here, we, you, together, we are the household of God. We're the new place where God's presence dwells. When we serve one another, when we gather together faithfully to worship together, when we have God's truth poured into our lives, when we sharpen one another in smaller group environments, when our kids go to Sunday school, temple functionings are happening because we sharpen one another, we shape one another in the truth of the gospel. As I came in this morning, there's like massive boxes out there that are collection points for food items and essential items for unwed or single moms throughout New Jersey and the Northeast Carter. Why do we do that? It's just because like you're supposed to do that around the holidays and you're supposed to be giving kind child people. Well, yeah, we are supposed to be, but for us as a church, it's deeper than that. It's actually a way that we relate to our world in a God-honoring way. It's a way that we show kindness and love to those who are around us. Next week, as you heard, we're going to kick off year-end giving. And a significant portion of that is going to go to war-torn areas throughout our world. Areas of like Ukraine, Israel, Gaza, Sudan. Areas that are torn apart by conflict. You might, it might be easy to say, like, why do we care about all those people? Life is pretty kind and comfortable here in Hunterdon County. Why bother with thinking about sort of the horrible things that are happening in our world as long as we can insulate ourselves in the nice little life that God has given us here? Well, the simple answer is because we're being built together. Not just personally, but as God's community. Somehow together, collectively, we represent the presence of God in our world. We represent his care for the downtrodden, the poor, the traumatized, the oppressed. We represent God's care for the lonely, the outsider, the unprovided for. God cares about that. It was the God who was in the temple in the Old Testament, who spoke words to the nation of Israel and said, here's how I want you to care for the poor. Here's how you're going to be my representatives in the world. Same is true today. We're the place, we're the people among which God dwells. And so we're people filled with grace and truth. We're people filled with kindness, not so that we're seen as being kind or loving, but so that God is seen as kind and loving. God is at work personally. God is at work communally. But God is also at work progressively. Progressively. Notice again verse 21. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the world. Notice the sense of trajectory there. The sense of, of, of this is still coming. 
It's generating strength. Build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Notice there's a foundation which sort of presumes there's going to be stuff built on top of it. Before I went to seminary, I worked for a lumber company for a number of years. And uh, I packed a lot of lumber for houses. I also drove a lot of trucks to a lot of foundations that were simply holes in the ground with some concrete blocks. And we'd back up and dump the lumber there. And that's how the house would be constructed. I saw a lot of places that hardly looked like anything. But a new house was coming. A new house that would have people in it. Lights would be turned on. Food would be made. Life would happen at home. But for them, it was, its foundation was essential, but it was a foundation. And so Paul is saying, Jesus is building this unimaginable thing through which his presence is going to be made known in the world. That doesn't mean that we know how it all works together at the moment. Sometimes... It concerns me a little bit how when tragic things happening in our world, and certainly in recent days we've seen some really tragic stuff happen, it concerns me a little bit how maybe quickly followers of Jesus are to say, well, the whole world's just going to hell in a handbasket, and that's what God said would happen, and it's just going to happen, so we kind of like sit back and be passive. Try this Mainly illustration on for size and see if it maybe helps you understand. When Jesus came, he made bold pronouncements as to what he was up to. He made bold pronouncements about his creation being made new one day. He made bold pronouncements about peace and harmony being on earth. He made bold pronouncements about the flourishing of humanity under the reign of King Jesus. He made bold pronouncements about that. So much so that he also said, hey, by the way, don't get thrown off of the vision for what I'm going to do by some of the hiccups or speed bumps that you run across. Maybe look at it this way. Maybe imagine if I brought you out to a little garden plot and I said to you, hey, like I've planted all the seeds here. There's tomatoes, there's corn, there's cucumbers or squash, whatever you like. Here's the garden plot. And this garden plot someday is going to yield a beautiful harvest. It's going to provide food and nutrition for you, your family, and others. It's, it's this pretty amazing thing, and it will bear great fruit. But, but hey, just so you know, there's going to be seasons when it doesn't rain for a week or two, and that thing's going to need to be watered. There's going to be a drought. There might be some weeds that grow up. There will be some weeds that grow up. Like, how foolish would it be if when the weeds grow up, when there's a drought, you said, ah, like, yeah, it's just, that's all it's going to be anyway. It's not coming to anything anyway. The whole thing is down the tubes anyway. Just like let it, no, you would actually be energized by the vision of what's been promised. You would see the drought as an interruption in the grand trajectory of what this garden is to produce. You wouldn't simply sit back and say, ah, oh, there's a drought. Just let the whole thing go. No, you'd say, there's a drought. So this thing's got to be watered precisely because I know there's something fantastic that's coming. 
Friends, listen. Yes, there's a lot of things happening in our world, but don't get discouraged because God is still at work. Pick up the watering can. Pick up the trowels. Start weeding the soil. We don't walk away in despondency. The fact that there's troubles, the fact that there's drought, that actually inspires and motivates us to dive even more deeply into the game because we know that he who promised the ultimate renewal of all things, he's the one who is faithful. And so, man, this idea of the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket and that's just the way it's going to be, I don't know where it comes from. It's just not from God. Instead, what's from God is, yes, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be hardship. Expect that. But Jesus warned us of that precisely so that we wouldn't be thrown off the vision for what he's ultimately going to be about. In Ephesians 1, 8 through 10, I love these verses, and I really didn't cover them. Uh, when we went over this text, and they've actually been very prominent in my mind, and so it's not as though I wanted to avoid them. I just, they're so deep, and I just didn't quite know how to get there. Uh, it says, with all wisdom, just grab these words, with all wisdom, and God's got this thing figured out, okay? He's got it figured out. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. So God... <laughs> kind of lets us know little by little what he's working out, how he's figuring this out, what he's doing. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when times reach their fulfillment. We've seen some of it. Like, who would ever have thought, like, wow, like Jesus is born. That's crazy. Who would ever have thought of that? And then he says, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. God's unfolded a lot of the mystery. Jesus has come. I mean, that's crazy. Like, like that's how we're reconciled to God. Nobody figured that out. God showed that. Jesus came. That part of the mystery was finally made clear. And here's the deal, friends. Right now, yes, you and I, we still live in part of the mystery. Uh, Unless you're a lot different than me. There's stuff in your life that you're mystified as to how that will ever be part of fulfilling God's glorious plan. It just doesn't seem to fit. There's things that happen in our world that just mystify me. Like, how can this fit into God's glorious plan? And so I either got to choose to, like, Doubt my own lack of understanding or doubt God's grand plan. And given the history of the way that God's worked over time, I'll choose to doubt my own understanding. Because God's plan is at work. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know how all the messy pieces of the puzzle in your life are ever going to contribute to Christ bringing unity to all things in heaven and on earth but I know he will do that. I know how it's going to work for our world today, but what I do know is all things will be brought to unity in heaven and on earth under Christ. 
And someday that mystery, that part of the mystery is going to be unfolded as well. And all things actually will be brought to unity. Even things in your life that right now are a mystery and you can't figure out. I'm going to ask our team to come up. And we're going to sing the song, The God Who Stays. God is at work personally. God is at work communally. God is at work progressively. Open your heart to him. You got to make a personal decision to embrace his, his grace. God is at work communally. We together represent the presence of God in this world along with all of God's people all over the world. And God's at work progressively. I don't understand some stuff and I'm can easily admit that. But what I do know is this, God's work is on track. And part of the way in which God stays with his people or with this world is through his people. So let's stand and let's sing the song. Let's celebrate the faithfulness of God. And um, yeah, let's praise him for that.
thank you that you are faithful, that your work is progressing, that you're ever building your cause, your kingdom in this world. You're on the move. And so I thank you that you are present with us. But God, also help us as persons, as individuals, as a community of people, to be your presence in the world as well. Because one of the ways in which this world sees that you are here is by looking at us. And so may we faithfully represent your name. May your Holy Spirit empower us to do that. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. And everyone who agrees that, amen, amen. Our prayer team is down here to the right. You're right, my left. Uh, We'd love to pray with you. God bless. Happy Thanksgiving weekend.